Hello, Syngapland. My name is Michael Gralia. Today is Friday, August 18th, and this is episode 112 of Syngap 10, your 10-minute weekly briefing on everything you need to know about Syngap 1. Today was bonkers. Today was bonkers. I don't even know what I did this morning, but at some point I took Tony and we got a vaccine and then we drove to San Francisco and we did something I'm about to tell you about. And then we drove to Oakland and did the same thing in a different hospital. And then we drove back and then I had a meeting with Rarebase about drug repurposing. And then I just went to a back to school thing or whatever for John. So it's been nuts. It's been nuts. But I've got all of this stuff racing through my head because so much has happened this week and I need to get this out so I can focus on other things. Number one. This week, we announced the Stanford grant. So we gave $130,000 to Dr. Juliet Knowles at Stanford to work on maladaptive myelination in Syngap-1 mice. And the mice she's working with are actually mice with, with actual mutations that patients have. And she got those mice from Rick Huguenier, right? So now we're at the point where SRF is giving grants to people to build on work from other grants we've given, which is pretty exciting. And let me tell you about Juliet Knowles. She's fabulous. She's a MD, PhD at Stanford. She's a bit of a rock star. She's already got lots of NIH money. She's got a grant from PERF and she's got a grant from, um, I think it was AES or maybe it's L, I think, no, Cure, from Cure Epilepsy. And I saw that press release from Cure Epilepsy. Cure Epilepsy is one of the big, big, big kids. And um, I watched them closely and I saw this, their newsletter and it announced, we gave them grants to Juliet knows absent seizures. So I was like, wait a minute, absent seizures. We have absent seizures. Who is this person? What is she doing? She's in Stanford. I live very close. I called her up. I said, hey, can we meet? I'm a patient advocate. She's like, please come on down. Very gracious, very kind. I go down. She's like, this is what we do. And she takes me through her research. And I say, this is what we do. And I talk about single research. And I say, here's the thing. Your research, I'm going to dumb this way down. And I pro- my, pro- might be getting it wrong. So don't, don't hold her to what I'm about to say. But at some level, her research says, absent seizures called the cause myelination to go wrong. Myelination, myelin is like the fatty cover of the nerves, right? It's really simplifying. And when that goes wrong, you um, can, it can cause more worse seizures over time. And, and then I sit there and I'm like, wow, our kids start life with lots and lots of absent seizures as their brains are growing and the myelin is growing. And then at some point, many of our kids progress to drop seizures. I was like, kind of the same story. What you're saying makes sense. And it's the first time I had come across a researcher who was like, oh yeah, absent seizures are interesting. Because a lot of people are like, oh, your kids only have absent, it's not a big deal. I'm like, first of all, it's not true. Our kids have drop seizures, our kids have tonic-clonic seizures. But the first phenotype is absence. Second of all, it is a big deal. You try writing a memo if your computer spontaneously reboots 100 times a day, because that's what our kids are doing. And sometimes it's more than 100 times a day. And absence seizures are not nice. And it's horrific to sit and hold your baby and see him having clusters of absence seizures. So that was how Dr. Knowles and I met. And I said to her, I said, look, we get fellowships. I'd love to see you work on Syngap. Would you apply? And she said, sure. And she did. And my dog wants to come in. And here we are. She's working on Syngap. And, and she's really a fabulous person. It gets better. We start talking and she's like, you know, Mike, I want to have a genetic epilepsy clinic here at Stanford. And, and you know, what do you think? I said, I think we are really needing somewhere on the West Coast for patients to go where they understand what Syngap is. And by the way, SCXBP1 is around the corner. They're friends. That's a synaptopathy, et cetera, et cetera. So there's another memo, a memo, 
another blog on our website where Dr. Knowles, so the same Dr. Knowles we just gave money to, who's working on mice to, to figure out the progression, the eleptogenesis, how how the seizures grow or, or generated, um, of Syngap seizures. The same one is an MD PhD, which means on Wednesdays she can see patients. So she goes to the clinic on Wednesdays and she is eager to see Syngap patients. So memo one, yay, thank you donors, we gave a great grant, we're gonna learn a lot about Syngap. Memo two, Dr. Knowles at Stanford wants to see Syngap patients. So if you are anywhere on the West Coast, I urge you to look, go to our website, look at the blog about Stanford and try to get an, appo or get an appointment with Dr. Knowles on Wednesday or someone else in the California Synaptopathy Clinic, Dr. Lee Messer as well is there, he, he's who I see, and, and get in there and help her understand the clinical phenotype and benefit from her growing body of expertise. Now you remember, if you listen to episode 111, which was the last one I did, I was just coming back from what? From a meeting at Stanford where Dr. Helbig, who runs the CHOP operation, was presenting and who was his host? Dr. Knowles. So we have great communication and collaboration and camaraderie and colleagueship between Dr. Helbig, who is learning a lot about Syngapians, and Dr. Knowles, who wants to learn more about Syngapians. Sure, he knows quite a bit. So that's an incredible partnership happening there. I'm thrilled. The other blog we put up this week was now that the IRB is approved for Dr. Wilsey, Dr. Wilsey would like to do uh, a breathing test. And that was what I drove to San Francisco for today. So the breathing test is super simple. If you go to the blog, you'll see a device. It just looks like all the devices. It's a little plastic box with a plug. But what they want us to do is, is go to her lab, sign a consent, and literally she will take this device. I use this device today. And then she said, put it in the biohazard bin. And I said, yes, Dr. Wilsey. And then I promptly put it in my bag. Um, so, but it was just you know, biomedical waste. So I wanted to show it to you. Um, so what, what happens is we'll take one of these out of a bag, brand new, and she'll plug it into her little machine. And then you have to hold it, non-invasive. We're not sticking it in anywhere. We're just sort of sticking it on the nostril. And you just have to sit there for 30 seconds and breathe. And this little machine measures your NNO for 30 seconds. Uh, your nasal nitrous oxide, nasal nitrous oxide, we're all exhaling it. And it spews out a number. And the question is, is the number different for, normal, for um, neurotypical people and Syngapians. And that's the question she's trying to answer. So if you are anywhere near San Francisco, please email Dr. Wilsey. Her email is in the blog. Go to the lab. All we're asking you to do is hold this to a Syngapian's nose for 30 seconds. And, um, and then also to do it to, with a family member, whoever's bringing it. That's fine. And um, we had to do it five times with Tony. Because as soon as you tell Tony to do something, he does the opposite. So I say, Tony, breathe through your mouth. And he's like, <laughs> I'm like, Tony, that's not your mouth. So then we are for a friend round and he lasted like 20 seconds, but you need 30. So we had like five tries. And on the last one, what, what got him is we started asking him questions about his favorite, his favorite game. And he was like so wrapped in, in hearing Dr. Willsey ask him these questions that 30 seconds went by and we got the reading. So that's all it is. Read the UCSF study. Check it out if you're in San Francisco or anywhere in the Bay Area. Please just get over there and let's get her some data. More incredible news. Dr. Kadam emailed me. I don't know. I think it was last night. I almost got out of bed into this episode on the spot because I was just like, that's something else. So front, uh, there's a case study on one of our patients who tried low-dose Ficampa or Parampanel. Ficampa is the trade name. Yeah, trade name. 
And then Parampanella is the, is the generic name. Um, and there's this really interesting study. You have to go back a couple years. Dr. Kadam heard parents talking about um, this drug. And, and the, sh- the short story is it's an anti-seizure drug. And, the, and they, you started a low dose because some of these drugs you have to ramp up, like ethosuximide, lamotrigine, whatever. And, and the parents said, you know, it was amazing. When we started on this drug, sleep got better. Cognition got way better. But then when we got to full dose, wasn't pretty. Behaviors went nuts. And she said, well, why, why don't we just do low dose? Why, why, why go up? Why not just stay at that low dose? And so uh, she wrote a paper with a guy named Brennan Sullivan, who's just incredible. I think he was a pre-doc at that point. He's in, I think he's in grad school now. Um, amazing guy. I, he's going to do a lot of great things for Singa. Anyway, I, I'm sidetracking myself. So she published this great paper. A lot of us tried it. Um, some had good results. Some didn't. Those of us who didn't stopped. I think a lot of people maybe didn't pay attention to that low dose bit. Like it is not the recommended dose. It is not the recommended dose. It is a much lower dose that we're talking about. If you remember anything from this podcast, if you are going to read that case study and give it to your neurologist, like underline, highlight, big red marker, low dose. Anyway, one of our patients has really had remarkable, remarkable um, benefit from this. And I said, I said to Dr. Kadam, I said, hey, could you write a case study on this? And I say this to a lot of doctors. Hey, can you write a case study on this? And what I get back is it's a lot of time, a lot of effort. Um, you know, they're, they're not, it's, not, it's not great for my career. Like people don't really value case studies. And, um, you know, there's like publication fees for, for, for journals. If you're doing a big article, publication fees make sense. If you're doing a little case study, we're not, the, I don't have that money to, to a couple thousand dollars for a publication fee. Here's the, here's the thing though. These stories that we're gathering are really important because right now there's all of these interesting cases about Syngapians. We're a small rare disease. There's not that many of us. So the more case studies that are out there, the more clinicians get, get hints about where to look on things to do for their kids and the more we learn about um, each other. And it's in the literature. It's not just a parent giving an anecdote. Suddenly it's credible. And this case study Dr. Kadam wrote with um, Siddhartha Gupta and Natasha Ludwig and somebody else I don't know, um, really, really is beautifully written. So check it out. Links in the show notes. It's free. And you know why it's free? Because guess who paid for the publication fees? You did. You, the donors of Syngap Research Fund, trust us with your money. And then when Dr. Kadam called me and said, hey, really cool case study, but we don't have the budget for the publication fees. I was like, I'm on it. Just send me the bill. It was like, I don't know, 2000-ish. I'm making up thereabouts. Now, there's one more publication about Syngap. Now, doctors in other countries who are banging their head against the wall with a kid could read that case study and be like, this could work. Now, there's one more block. There's one more building block out there for us to help people with Syngap. I'm going to say this publicly. If you're a clinician and, or a parent with a case study and the clinician's like, I don't really have time or the money to write a case study, call us. We will support it. It's, it's, it's in the grand scheme of things, if, we're, if we can help another Syngapian or multiple Syngapians by telling important stories about clinical successes or failures and getting that in the literature for a couple thousand dollars, it's worth it every time, every time. So I'm really proud of that. This is the first case study we funded and hopefully not the last. Thank you to Brennan Sullivan for your early work, to Dr. Kadam, who we just love and adore, to Siddhartha Gupta, who I don't even know, but I want to meet you one day, and to Natasha Ludwig and the other author. Amazing work. Last thing I want to say tonight, and because I'm running out of time. Actually, I'm, I'm already over time. We're going to call this Singap whatever, not Singap 10. Anyway, I had another exciting meeting this week with the parent volunteer team. And it was a full Zoom screen. 
It was a lot of people. Nancy, Ashley, Callie, Corey, all the big kids. Um, Lauren, of course, was there because Lauren's everywhere. Deanna. Um, about the conference. And we really talked about everything. We talked about swag, talked about dinner, talked about the family day, talked about the agenda, talking about what we're going to do and how to do it and how to support all the new families. It was awesome. So plan on coming to the conference. I'll put a link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Dr. And congratulations to Dr. Um, Knowles. Thank you, Dr. Wilsey. Thank you, Dr. Gadam. We are making the future better for children with Syngap. It's happening. And oh, up if you're a clinician or a researcher listening to this, grants are due September 1st. Please apply for support. Syngap Research Fund is here to support you to learn more about this terrible disease so that we can make the future better for all of these kids. Thank you so much.